Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. For today's podcast, we're going to be discussing in some detail the new asset class of litigation funding as an investment. And to do that, we're kindly joined by the founder of Axia Funder in Cormac Leach. Cormac, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Hi, Jonathan. Good to be here. So we're going to be discussing uh, in some detail and going to the different points around litigation funding uh, and how it's working. And of course, Axia Funder, who uh, Cormac has, has founded uh, recently, is a specialist in this. Um, but before we do that, Cormac, would you be able to give us a brief introduction to yourself and Axia Funder, please? Yeah, sure. Um so, well, I've, I've been in investment banking for something around 25 years, um, done a variety of different roles. Um, you know, um, initially I was running a portfolio of interest rate derivatives, um, you know, so managing uh, hundreds of millions of pounds of um, swaps, captions, floors, um, complex financial products. Um, and then I uh, moved on from that to become a large cap equity bank research uh, analyst, um, and was working at bulge bracket banks like JP Morgan, ABN AMRO, um, and you know, writing lengthy tomes about large banks like HSBC, Barclays, and so on. And then migrated into alternative finance, so I can see the whole fintech sector taking off. Got very excited about the potential to um, uh, disintermediate or disrupt the banks, so got a very interested in alternative finance. Um, and then briefly got into a situation myself where I needed some funding for a, um, a very strong commercial litigation case um, uh, that I had myself. And my first reflex, having been in alternative finance, was to look for a alternative finance funding solution. I went on to Google, had a look, and really could only find one potential option in the United States, nothing in Europe. And then, uh, you know, I ended up getting funding myself from one of the traditional litigation funders. But I had it in the back of my mind that there was the potential to create an alternative finance solution um, aimed at the litigation funding market, and then a couple of years later, I had a situation. I had the opportunity to um, to start my own business, and then decided to um, take the plunge and um, and set up Axia Funder, which uh, is, uh, to, as far as I know, is is the first for profit um, litigation funding platform uh, outside the United States. So, so you know, in the UK and Europe. Um, and to my knowledge, is 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 the you know is the only platform that allows investors, high net worth investors, sophisticated investors to get direct access to commercial litigation funding opportunities and and the potentially high returns that they can generate. So you, you mentioned there when you first looked that there wasn't a huge amount of, uh, of of options out there for people looking for funding of litigation uh, cases. I mean, how how has that evolved since that point? Is it still very much uh, the, the same in terms that there's limited options? Of course, you, you mentioned there, Axia Funder is, is the only uh, platform, to your knowledge, available for for investors to, to invest in. But I mean, are there solutions for people? Uh, that are looking for funding. Yes, in- uh, absolutely, there are. I mean, so litigation funding is a is a relatively new asset class. Uh, as an industry, it's really only been active in the UK, I would say, for maybe around 
15 years or so. You know, it's certainly grown strongly over the last five or 10 years. But most of the um, providers of litigation funding are, you know, operating on a kind of traditional model where, it, you know, they have a permanent pool of capital. They're set up as a private equity firm. Typically, a lot of their capital will be sitting in, you know, uh, Cayman Islands or, you know, Jersey offshore. And they're really only catering to very, very large private equity firms and uh, endowments and so on. And, and high net worth and sophisticated investors really cannot get access to the asset class, which, which has some unique, unique characteristics. You know, it has no correlation with the general market. Each individual case is not correlated with the next one. So you can potentially get very nice returns without any of the kind of typical macro correlation risk that you would have from equities or property. You know, so in, in the next financial crisis, you know, inevitably it will come at some point. Equities and properties typically will decline dramatically, you know, at the same time and non-correlated assets like litigation funding, you know, will continue, we expect to generate very solid returns, you know, so, so it's kind of a, a, an attractive asset class from that point of view. So let's just talk now, Cormac, about the actual process from uh, an investor point of view. And then from in there, we can elaborate on, on some of the points because some of them are actually quite fascinating. But, you know, in, in a very you know, sort of broad um, sort of breakdown of a process for an investor that was looking to invest in litigation funding through the Axia Funder platform. What would that look like and, and what would they have to do and what would the process be? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So so first of all, the the, the investment product is, is quite complex. You know, this is a niche um, product and it's you know, it's really only aimed, therefore, at high net worth investors. So litigation funding is a, um, a relatively complex product and is relatively high risk because each individual case, you know, you either win or, or you lose. And so it's quite binary. Therefore, it's really um, our product is aimed at high net worth and sophisticated investors. Um, and if, if they're interested in, in, in investing, they basically come to axiefunder.com, register, um, open an account. Um, they're asked to do um, a suitability um, questionnaire where they're asked various questions um, to check their understanding of what the Axia Funder product is. Um, so before they take that test, they should really research on our blog and you know look at um, some of the frequently asked questions and so on on the platform. Basically, they take that um, uh, suitability um, questionnaire, assuming that they pass that then they're asked to put in um, you know, identification and pass KYC um, and certify that they're high net worth or, or sophisticated. And um, then once they get approved, then they come onto the platform and there will be a range typically of available um, investments um, on the platform. And they click on the, the one they're interested in and they're invited then to sign a non-disclosure agreement um, confirm that they don't have any conflict with the parties to the litigation. And then they're presented with a lot of information. You know, there will typically be a video of the lawyer running the case, uh, talking about the, the profile of the case. There'll be a 40 page um, information prospectus that we put together about the case. There will often be a data room with lots of additional information on the case. But to be clear, every case that comes onto the platform has already been very carefully and thoroughly vetted by the Axia Funder team. So, I mean, if you like, I can talk you through how we select the cases um, that we put in front of investors. Yeah. 
Indeed, and please, please, please call me. That that uh, yeah. would be particularly yeah. interesting. So, I mean, we we very much realise that you know most high net worth sophisticated investors will not be litigation experts. Therefore, our principle, our guiding principle, is that we only put cases onto the platform that we think are very high quality investments. So, you know, in principle, an investor could simply make an allocation of a certain amount of capital to every case that comes onto our platform. And we expect, you know, we can't guarantee, you know, returns are not guaranteed and capital's at risk, et cetera. But um, we believe that if an investor invests into every case that comes onto our platform on a portfolio basis, we expect they'll make, you know, 20 to 30% because we've carefully vetted the cases. And just to talk through how we vet the cases, um, you know, so far we have funded, I think it's 12 cases, and that's based on having looked at over 300 cases. So we have a very high rejection rate in terms of, um, you know, the number of cases we accept for funding on the platform. And, and to talk through the, the process, how, how, we, how we vet cases, the first thing we look at are um, the legal merits of the case. And the way we think about legal merits is kind of it, it, there are two parts to it. One is we want to make sure that the claimants have the high moral ground. You know, it has to be a case where you look at the story of the case and you look at the claimants, you look at the defendants, and there's a clear, you know, there's a clear indication the defendants treated the claimants badly. You know, it's kind of, you know it when you see it, you know, the, the high moral ground. The second point is we just need to make sure that the, the legal technical merits stack up. You know, so for example, we need to make sure that we're within the time limitation. You know, when when an event happens that such as there's a potential dispute, you typically have six years in, in the UK to actually file a claim. So, you know, that's one example of needing uh, to have the legal tech, technical merits. Um, then other aspects, you know, we need to make sure the defendant has has money and has the ability and willingness to pay if, if there's a settlement or a judgment. There's no point in winning the case if the defendant doesn't have any money. Um, then we also look at the case economics. So we want to make sure that the value of the claim is big enough compared to how much it's going to cost to litigate. You know, because you know, if you're spending, for example, half a million pounds, and then the ultimate judgment turns out to be only, let's say, you know, one and a half million pounds, then by the time you know, the funder's been paid, the insurer's been paid, the lawyers have been paid. Typically, there's not very much left for the claimants, and that just doesn't really work, you know. So we'll only fund cases where the economics make sense. Um, then, you know, moving on, other criteria, we need to make sure there's a solution for adverse cost risks. So in the UK, if you litigate against someone and you lose, you're liable for their costs. You know, the loser in a litigation pays the cost of the other side. So basically every case pretty much that we fund, there are some special exceptions that we can go into, but the vast majority of cases, we require that there's insurance in place to cover the costs of the other side in the scenario where the claimant does not win the case. And the reason for that is that if a claimant pursues a case and loses it, and the, um, the claimant doesn't have the ability to pay, then it, in principle, the, the investors could be liable to pay the cost of the defendant. So we always want to make sure that there's insurance in place to, to remove the adverse cost risk such that it protects investors. And we also want to make sure that the, the, the legal team uh, representing the claimants are uh, experienced. You know, they, they, they have um, clear credentials and, and, you know, evidence that they've done similar cases in the past. We're, also, you know, we're big believers in alignment of interest. So we want to make sure that the, the solicitor is running the case to, to the maximum extent possible. 
and also the claimants have skin in the game. You know, so you know we believe that incentives really um, drive drive results. And you know, the more of the solicitor's own fees that are exposed um, or contingent on a win, the more likely we believe um, the, the claimant is to win the case. Uh, and then you know, there are various other things on the checklist. We want to make sure that litigation funding uh, is 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 allowed in the jurisdiction. Some jurisdictions still don't allow litigation funding. Um, and, you know, just kind of, we also want to make sure the pricing makes sense relative to the risk. And we also want to make sure that there's enough capital being raised and allocated to the case to make sure that we have enough to finance the case right to the very end of the trial. Um, and, 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 you know, we, we operate against those criteria and we believe that, you know, if we rigorously um, vet cases based on those criteria, then we're going to generate good outcomes. And, and so far, Touchwood, it's working well. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we funded 12 cases and of those five cases have already resolved positively um, seven cases still ongoing, but we haven't had any cases uh, go against us so far. So there was a lot lot there. Um, Cormac, there's a few points uh, that, that I think would be quite interesting for listeners if you'd be able to, to elaborate on. And that's obviously the, the risk management side of things and, and in particular the insurance uh, side of things. I mean, how, what's the sort of process uh, behind that? You, you said that it, it applied to all cases uh, that you, uh, you you put onto the to the platform. I mean, is, is there a situation uh, there could be issues with the insurance? That'd obviously be a concern to, to investors. And, and what is put in place um, to make sure that you know investors are getting the best deal from any sort of insurance deals that that, that you're doing. Um, to make sure that their losses are are actually minimised. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so typically um, we will source after the event insurance um, from investment grade insurance companies. And to be precise, it's actually the claimant getting the adverse cost insurance. Um, and you know, so so I mean, you know, it's always good to look at the worst case scenarios. So suppose that we fund a case um, with um, uh, with AT insurance in place, and you know we we expect that you know at least seventy five percent of our cases will win, and we can go into the into the reasons for that. I mean the, the main reason is that eighty to ninety percent of cases settle before trial, but you know but you know let's look at the other twenty five percent of the cases that that don't win. So then in that scenario, um, the claimants are liable for the cost of the other side. Now as I mentioned, there's after the event insurance. Um, so in the vast majority of those cases, the active event insurance will be activated and will cover the adverse cost risks. However, um, you know, being very pessimistic, there, there's a very small tail risk that the insurance will not, will not pay out. And that could either be because the insurance company becomes insolvent, doesn't have enough capital to pay, or it could be that the insurance company um, decides that they're not going to pay out on the policy, either because... The solicitor was negligent, um, or the claimants didn't uh, disclose all the information they should have regarding the case. Now, if the solicitor is negligent, as it happens, then a, there's potentially then a lawsuit against the professional negligence insurance of the solicitor. But if the claimants have not disclosed all the information about the case, theoretically, the um, the, the insurance company can repudiate the contract. Now, in practice. You know, I think, you know, when I speak to uh, insurance underwriters, they say they've seen one instance of it in 20 years. So it's a very remote event. But in that event, the next thing that would happen would be that the judge or the court would look to the claimants to pay the adverse cost risk to the other side. 
but if the claimants for whatever reason did not have the ability to to pay those costs then the the court could then look to the to the to to the funder and the way that we fund these cases is through a limited company so you know because it's a limited company um it provides quite a lot of protection to investors but theoretically the judge can pierce the corporate veil it's, it's called and look to jointly pursue on a pro rata basis the shareholders of that SPV. So we we in our risk warning disclose that there's a in to our mind a very, very low risk that you could actually lose more than you invest into a case. So in principle, for example, if you invested ten thousand pounds into a case, there's a very remote risk that you could lose that ten thousand plus another ten thousand. So we, you know, in part for that reason. But also just because we think diversification in principle is a good idea because each one of these cases is binary, we encourage investors to invest into, you know, ideally five, 10 or, or 20 cases to get a good spread of risks and actually just to completely minimize these very remote tail risks that theoretically are still lurking around the edges. Now, in some of our cases, we do have a thing called non-avoidable AT insurance in place. And that's a policy from insurance companies where they're effectively on the hook for the um, the cover they provided, irrespective of whether or not the claimants have misrepresented the facts of the case. Um, so as you can imagine, that that protects investors more. So we seek that work as much as we can. We're also exploring other ways to completely eliminate these very remote tail risks. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a, a work in progress in terms of um, completely de-risking this. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, thank you very much for that comment. That's a very good explanation there. Of course, as you said, uh, in in uh, actually what happens um, in very rare cases, but I think it's good for, for listeners when they're trying to understand this, what the potential uh, risks are. But as you said, the majority of cases and looking at your track record have been successful. So let's now focus, Cormac, on successful cases. And this is where investors would, of course, uh, be receiving a return on on their investment, and you said was it seventy percent of your cases have been successful so far? Uh, no, well, I mean all of all of the cases that have have concluded have been successful. So you know, on your metric, that's a hundred percent success rate. But you know, we do have seven cases ongoing um, okay. where the outcome is uncertain. Okay, so um, you know, when you're looking at those cases, investors in each of those particular cases, what does it look like on the other side for them? What's the process um, if you have uh, a case that, that you're successful in and, and you win? Um, what sort of returns can investors expect um, from those, the time frames? Would you be able to get a little bit of details about that side of things? Yeah, sure. I mean, just looking kind of at the, the glass half half full um, side of the equation. I mean, so we did we did have a, you know, just to give you one one example of a case that, that settled very recently. I mean, so I got, I got approached by two entrepreneurs who um, were running a, um, a property development business and they had got um, um, fire um, fire and theft insurance for one of their buildings. The building was then burned down by some teenagers. It was an arson attack. They then went to their insurance company to claim on the policy. The insurance company refused to pay out, saying that they had not disclosed particular details about some. SPVs that they had managed in the past, and they said, you know, that the the details were completely not relevant to the insurance, and and actually managed to get insurance from another insurance company, and um, having disclosed these details with with no difficulty whatsoever. But the insurance company was playing hardball, refusing to pay out. These claimants came to us. We lined up uh, solicitors, 
um, that were willing to work on 100%, no win, no fee for them. We provided funding. And then they went back to the insurance company saying, we're fully funded to trial on this. And do you really want to um, ha have litigation here or do you want to have a mediation? The insurance company completely changed its tune immediately and met for mediation and settled, you know, within a matter of weeks for, um, you know, about five times what they had originally offered. They had offered a very nominal sum initially, but then they offered, it was actually more, it was six times and the original offer um, they offered to settle. So, so that's a very good instance of, you know, a situation where when a litigation funder comes into the picture and adds some capital levels of playing fields between claimants with a strong case, but no money, and a deep-pocketed defendant with, with a poor um, uh, legal merit situation. Um, and in that, actually, it wasn't fantastic for investors because the case settled very, very quickly. But investors typically on something like that can look to make a very quick 15%. So, you know, it's a modest return because it settled so quickly. Um, but, you know, more generally, we would expect cases to run for one or two years, sometimes three years. And if the case wins, investors can typically expect to be making 55 to 70 percent per annum on the capital. Now, of course, not every case will win. But on average, we think investors will be making, you know, well north of 20 percent where we're targeting around 30 percent per annum type return. And another thing I think is important for investors to be aware of is that in many situations, we can put insurance in place that will protect, you know, the majority of investors' capital. So it sounds a little bit like having your cake and eating it. So if, if the case wins, you're getting returns of, you know, 50 to 70 percent. If the case loses, in, in, in some instances, you're only risking 20 percent of your capital net of the insurance in place. So it's a very asymmetric picture, um, and you know. So I think it, for that reason, it's a very interesting niche. You know, there, there isn't room in this sector for a huge amount of capital to come in, but for investors who do get involved, I think the returns relative to the risk are really quite attractive. Fantastic, thank you very much, Cormac. What I'd like to do now, and this is quite an interesting uh, point, I feel, with litigation funding, is is the correlation between more traditional assets. Uh, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning, uh, litigation funding can be classed as an alternative uh, asset. And I know one of the attractions typically to alternative investments are the, the low correlation with traditional assets such as, as stocks and bonds. I mean, but how, how is that um, actually seen in, in, in the real world, Cormac? Because, you know, of course you'd think, you know, if people are around and they want to put in, invest in in certain cases you know that there's an element of of sentiment behind that but what are you seeing in the in the real world in terms of how things are performing in terms of the correlation between uh, litigation funding and traditional stocks and bonds yeah it, it's interesting in terms of investors perceptions i mean it, it's a very unusual period right now i think because equities have had a very strong run recently um you know residential property i think has had a strong run um, so at the moment, because of QE and, and a lot of liquidity, virtually every asset class has been has been has been increasing in in, in value. Um, but you know, I, th I think more um, kind of forward-looking uh, investors will probably realize or agree that you know there's limited upside for equities here. There's arguably limited upside for property. You know, on at least on a real inflation-adjusted basis, you know these asset classes have already had a tremendous run. 
So I, th I think smarter investors will probably be looking around for alternatives. You know, either you move to cash, which is not great given inflation, you know, you can go into bonds, but again, on a, on a real inflation adjusted basis, most bonds are not going to generate a very attractive return at all. So, you know, I think the logic for investors making some allocation into litigation funding, you know, I don't know, is it 2% or up to 5% of their total uh, investment portfolio? <coughs> Excuse me, but um, I, I think it does make sense to make some allocation into litigation funding because it is non-correlated and the returns are very substantial, you know. So if 5% if of your portfolio is generating 30%, um, you know, if you do the math, I think that that adds 1.5% of, of total return to your overall portfolio. And, you know, mathematically, you're, you're risking, you know, maximum 5% of the total portfolio. So, you know, I, th I think I think the, the cost benefit of making some allocation to a zero correlation asset class like litigation funding makes a lot of sense. And then within that, I think it makes a lot of sense to spread your bets, you know, so each individual case we believe has an expected return of 30%. And obviously the more cases you can add, the the the, the more you reduce the, the variability or the volatility of those returns, because each case is not correlated with the next one. So, you know, as a thought experiment, if you're able to invest into a thousand cases, you your return in principle would be rock solid at 30% with no variability whatsoever. You know, where I contrast that if you invest into just one case, you know, really it's quite binary, right? You know, it could be, you know, a hundred percent loss, or you know, uh, you know, two x or three x profits. So, um, you know, diversification is, is is very important. I mean, the other point I would make is that at the moment, risk averse investors may be thinking, okay, let's go to cash, put money into bonds. Um, but when you factor in inflation, you know, inflation. I don't know what it's running at in the UK, but I think the last prints I saw were you'll know better than me. But the last prints I thought were three or possibly four percent per annum. You know. Inflation is is ticking up. Uh, so if you're putting money into bonds or you know even high quality peer to peer loans that are generating you know one to three percent on a real basis, you are you know your your net worth is actually decreasing. And so to my mind, it does make sense to actually consciously take some risk and put money into something that is expected to generate thirty percent type return because that is going to help you beat inflation. Um, in the context of your overall portfolio. Indeed, indeed. So, come on, I just want to move on now to uh, the ESG characteristics of litigation funding. Now, of course, everybody knows over the past two years, ESG investing, impact investing has really grown substantially in, in popularity. And when doing the research for this podcast, that was something that became particularly apparent with litigation uh, funding. Would you be able to just give us a little bit more details around that, how, how that would play into that theme of ESG investing? Yeah, well, well it, it, it's, it's really very simple. Um, you know, I, I strongly believe that litigation funding is, is a positive force. I mean, some people can, can view litigation funding as ambulance chasers that are looking to, to prey on vulnerable people. But you know, you know, I've personally been in a situation where I needed litigation funding. And, you know, I can tell you when you have a strong case, you're up against a defendant who has a lot of cash and, you know, is, 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 is well positioned to defend their case, even though the, 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 the merits of their position are very weak. And um, that's a very stressful position to be in. And in a situation like that, litigation funder comes into the equation and completely levels the playing field. 
And claimants very often are willing to give up some of the upside of a case in exchange for the financing and, and effectively taking away the downside. Um, so, you know, I, I very much believe litigation funding is, is, is a positive force because it, it, it gives people access to justice. And, you know, there's a lot of research to show that if you protect property rights in a society, then GDP grows a lot faster and basically general prosper prosperity increases. I mean, you could argue that's why the UK and the United States have grown much more quickly over the last 200 years compared to, for example, Latin America or Africa. I believe it's about protecting property rights and empowering entrepreneurs to take risks and get rewarded for those risks. And litigation funding to me is part and parcel of that because time and time again, you see where hardworking, you know, entrepreneur enters into a contract with, you know, a, a large corporate or a larger partner, creates a huge amount of value and then once the value is available and is supposed to be divided up fairly between the entrepreneur and the larger corporate or the larger partner, the larger partner just completely renates on the contract and, and, and captures all the value themselves. Litigation funding in that scenario protects the entrepreneur, protects the, the equitable distribution of the value created. And for that reason, I think it's, it's clearly a, you know, a social good. And, and, you know, and, and deserves to be included within ESG investing. Thank you. That's fantastic, Cormac. Just just to finish off uh, now, so people are just going to be listening to this. We are quite interesting in, in the way that it works. And there will be a link uh, to anybody that's listening. Uh, the notes of this podcast will have a link through to the Axia Funder website. So you can check that out and see a little bit more about how it works. But if someone was to do that, Cormac, what would they expect to find there in terms of they they thought they wanted to get involved what would the process be i know you did touch on it on the on the beginning and, and what could they expect to find there in terms of currently active opportunities yeah i mean so just for, for investors that are thinking about this i mean just to flag again uh, this is only aimed at high net worth and sophisticated investors and actually we're in the process of of limiting access and information on our platform going forward such that it's harder for people who are not high net worth and sophisticated to, to access live opportunities on the platform. But currently we do have two cases um, that are available for funding. Uh, the total um, funding that we're seeking is 900,000 um, pounds across the two cases. Um, one of them is about 63% funded. The other one's about 35% uh, funded. One of them has uh, more than half of the capital principal protected. Um, you know, we we carefully vetted both cases. We think they're very interesting. Um, you know, typically we do expect to have one new case every month. And, you know, as you can imagine, it's quite a time consuming process to um, to vet the cases because every time we put a case on platform um, we've already rejected 19 other cases that didn't make the cut, so to speak. Um, um, but yeah, I, I mean, we, we, we think it's a great product for high net worth and sophisticated investors. Um, we do need to flag, though, you know, that people need to review the risk warnings carefully and returns are not guaranteed and capital is at risk. But um, for people that are aware of that, then I think, uh, I think it should be an interesting investing proposition. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So that was Cormac Leach, who is the founder of Axia Funder. And as I did mention just then, if you do want to find out some more information, check out the notes of the podcast and you'll find a link through to, to their website. Cool, Matt. Thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember all investment involves risk.